I'm Frances Robertson Ritchie. Welcome to today's episode of The Explored Life, More Than Yoga. I am always keen to open my own eyes to the addictive nature, especially of alcohol, in this society where its use is normalized and encouraged um, through advertising and cultural norms. Today on The Explored Life, More Than Yoga, I'm talking to Victoria Seed, specialist in addiction and dependency. I was absolutely stunned by the statistic that one in 10 adults are affected by somebody else's drug and alcohol use. Victoria's work now focuses on helping women affected by a loved one's drug or alcohol use to reduce their stress and allow them to live a better life. Thanks so much for joining me this morning. I'm really excited to talk to you about the work that you do, Victoria, helping people. So do you want to start just by giving us a bit of background about what it is that you do to help the women in your group it is specifically women isn't it yeah I mean I do help mainly women who uh, are affected by a loved one's drug and alcohol use Um, and I help them to reduce stress Um, I teach them really effective strategies to cope that are evidence-based and um, you know I I help them to encourage their loved one into treatment um so that you know I mean we can't guarantee that that choice is down to the person that's using the drugs or alcohol but there are certain things families can do to encourage that process we can't make decisions for other people but you know we move them into that kind of um journey if you will So um, women come to me for help really for uh, at different stages of that as well. Mm -hmm. They um, may have just found out that their loved one has a problem with drinking or drug use. They may have been living with it for a long time. Some people I work with have lived with it for over a decade. Um, Some people, you know, they are uh they've lived with it for a little bit some people want to end relationships and are just trying to uh you know try my work out as a bit of a last attempt really at salvaging a relationship and that that isn't just romantic relationships that isn't just partners that might be relationships with other family members as well so I've had people work with me for siblings mm-hmm. um, who are using substances and, you know, also um, other family members, parents, children and yeah. things like that. So, yeah, I teach really effective strategies to cope, which we'll talk about shortly. But I've done this work since 2005. Um, I became a drug and alcohol practitioner uh, then and I was working in a young offenders institution So what was interesting there is that a lot of the work we did is what we call harm reduction. Mm -hmm. Um, Quite often what we see in services is kind of an abstinence-based approach. 
But as you can imagine, if you're working with 15 to 18 year old boys, which I was doing, who are uh, committing offences, possibly under the influence of substances, or they are, you know, um, committing offences to obtain substances, Mm. those young people were getting sentences sometimes of two, four months and they served two. So there was only so much he could do. So what we were aiming to do was to give them some harm reduction advice and support, you know, so that they are going out and uh, minimising the impact of the substance use on themselves and others. So it's things like, you know, avoiding sharing your spliffs with other people or because of the risk of bloodborne viruses or, you know, just moderating your drinking so you're not getting to a point where you're absolutely out of your mind and you don't know what you're doing and you're getting in fights or whatever. So, yeah, it started there, but I quite quickly realised that working with um, those young people in that setting, unless we worked with other members of the family, that it wasn't going to create that much change. And then after that, I started working in community-based settings, I worked in a charity, setting up a project, working with children of alcoholics. Um, and again, we did some great work. It was a project in three areas. Um, and there was myself and another project worker in Manchester. So we set it up, we developed group work, we developed one-to-one programs. Um, and the idea was that their parents would get support at the same time through the alcohol team, but it just wasn't happening. So although we were providing the children with respite and teaching them resilient strategies, the parents were often still drinking. And actually, sometimes they saw us as babysitters almost. No. You know, yeah. I remember once I dropped some children off. I was dropping some children off with their dad um, and he was in the pub. You know, and we were ringing children's services saying, look, this isn't okay." But just it was just, yeah, it was things like that. So then another position came up for me was uh, coordinating a new service, which was a whole family service. And that was called the Holding Families Service um, in a charity called Early Break, who I'm still very much in touch with and support the work they do. Um, and that was around parental substance misuse and working with the parents around that, the impact on the children, mm-hmm. um, working with carers as well, who were supporting them and other children in the family and also offering direct work to children. So at that point, it was like, yes, yeah, this is it. Like, this is what we need to be doing. And that project, actually, well, it's not a project anymore. It's a service. It's now commissioned and still commissioned in five areas in Greater Manchester, um, which is amazing considering all the funding cuts over the last 11 years. Mm-hmm. So they are doing a fantastic job. Um, and then for me, I um, decided three years ago to set up my own service because I thought I I was doing more work with carers and I thought, you know what, there's a whole, a a lot of people here that are living with somebody else's drug and alcohol use that I felt weren't getting the services that they needed. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I set up my service um, and my service is helping women specifically mainly women and that's kind of evolved since 2017 because men 
don't come to me for help. So I rebranded last year and it was very much female orientated to attract more of the people that were coming to me. Um, but yeah, I, um, I just wanted to fill that gap really, particularly for women that weren't known in the public and voluntary sector. So it's women like us, um, you know, that may not have been involved in safeguarding child protection services, um, other services, uh, because of any problems they're facing, but kind of just trying to get on with their lives professionally, personally, experiencing yeah. as much adversity, you know, as, as some other people may do that I've worked with before, but that wouldn't necessarily know where to go for help. So that's what the VESTA approach is about. Um, I wanted to reach those women, women like us, who are living in this really, really difficult situation, but instead of focusing on themselves and, you know, the support that they can get, they're focusing constantly on the loved one changing, which they have absolutely pretty much no control over. Um so yeah, I, I've evolved over the last few years and I have a free group for women who just don't know where to go um, called the Family Recovery Club and that's growing. Um, I have one-to-one programs and I have group a group work program as well. I'm just in the process of moving that, some of the stuff online though for Evergreen Courses because what I find is it's even though women that I work with might get to a point where they want to get help, not everybody wants to have a face-to-face discussion about it. Some people prefer at that starting point to go through a program on their own. So that's kind mm. of what I'm working on this year to move some of that stuff online and then give them the option of talking to me um, having additional work, you know, coming through other programs, whatever they need. But it's not all focused on their loved ones drinking and druggies. Some of it is because we need to be able to understand it. It's focused on them and their coping strategies and their well-being. And that's what I really love about my work. It's not just all about the other person, which quite often my clients come to me and think it is. I guess that's um, that's interesting because perhaps that's the crux of the answer to what what my first question was going to be, which is like it's so hard to live, um, obviously, with addiction and, and and very difficult to comprehend it. And perhaps I was going to say, how can we understand it better? You know, but from what you've just said there, I wonder if the the kind of crux of that is understanding that you need to build your own resilience and your own um, support first. Would you say that that's... Absolutely, yeah, because we know it's such an incredibly stressful situation. I mean, living with somebody else's drinking and drug use can tap into so much of your life. So it could be financially... Because alcohol and drugs cost money. You know, I work with, I've worked, I am a a qualified and trained drug and alcohol practitioner and I have been for many years and I'm a teacher and a trainer. So during my career, you know, I have worked with all sorts of, uh, you know, all sorts of substances and lots of different people at different um, parts of 
their recovery journey. So the the most important thing really is to understand the impact of it. And what we know uh, by some recent research by ADFAM, which is our national umbrella organization for alcohol, drugs and the family in the UK, um, they've, they've estimated now and found that one in 10 adults are affected by somebody else's drug and alcohol use, which is an unbelievable number of people. We've got one in five children that NACOA, the National Association for the Children of Alcoholics, is saying are living with a parent's problem drinking. One in five yeah. When we think, when we talk about this subject, what I always say is just be mindful of the use of language. So for, for a long time, it's only recently really, I've avoided using the word addiction because people just don't often relate to it. Even if you're thinking about your family member, it can be so hard to admit that they are addicted and you kind of wait for it to be, you know, the vision of the person who is addicted. Yeah, I think that's the, that's what um, people often think. That's the, that's it when someone's um, we're talking about alcohol, obviously here specifically. But yeah, I've heard people refer to oh, it's 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 all right unless you're drinking in the morning, you know. And there's quite a lot of misunderstanding about the very and and I am just being specific to alcohol here, but the very addictive nature of alcohol isn't there there's like a misunderstanding we we don't really understand that it is an addictive substance it's something I've kind of yeah um learning more about as I sort of get more interested in in health and well-being and you start to question these things yeah I mean um it's it's a drug Alcohol's a drug it's just a legal drug like tobacco is and the two most damaging drugs in the hierarchy are by far tobacco and alcohol and and then we get stuck on people that oh yeah hundreds of thousands yeah in terms of drug related deaths that's you know alcohol and drugs cause the most there's lots of other factors when we look about the heart look at the harm of drugs but you know heroin um crack cocaine cocaine ecstasy and all of that they're much further down the scale it's just that they're not acceptable not as acceptable in our society and we're told now that if alcohol was created now it wouldn't be legal you know there are too many risks so in my opinion like what we need to be doing is regulating drugs legally regulating drugs like we do alcohol even though it hasn't worked because people are still having a lot of problems and it's legal but at least if drugs are legal we can reduce the number of drug related deaths which are increasing mm-hmm. year on year and we don't want that to happen um you know we can reduce that because people understand the dosage people will get um, health-related advice. People like we get the units on our bottles. We'll get, um, you know, the um, uh, strength and dosage of the substance. So, yeah, I mean, I um, I just think when it comes to this problem, don't think about the terminology addiction or dependency. Think about how many problems it is causing you or your loved one, because that's where you gauge and start to gauge where we can get in as early as possible and provide help for 
either you love one if they want it and recognize it or for you or as well as for you as a family member that's coping with it and we've got to remember here because I am a safeguarding professional safeguarding children's practitioner that children will be affected by it and there was a really interesting report that came out in 2018 called like sugar for adults and that was focused around the impact of non-dependent drinking on children and it's a really interesting read so people people can't want to deliver training so people start shrinking into the seats like oh no that's me I'm not dependent and I drink listen I question and you have to get a little bit kind of um you have to ask some hard questions of yourself don't you I've done I've been through the process myself I've, I've asked those hard questions like is this you know, is this serving me? What the amount that I'm drinking? You know, even though it's acceptable, you know, um, the the acceptable face of it, you know, middle class glasses of wine as you watch TV, you know, as a way to relax or socialize, you know, um, and you think actually, and then when you try to, and then this kind of gets into the nature of addiction. Um, you realize that it is quite difficult to temper that, you know, once you've got into the habit of a certain amount of acceptable drinking, say. Um, yeah. Um, I just think when it comes to children, think about what they see and hear of you when you're intoxicated, what they see and hear, hear you know, what they experience of you when you're hung over or coming down off a substance. And then what do they experience of you when you're not on those things? Because to children that, and if you're really honest with yourself to children, that can be very, very different. And this isn't to make anybody feel guilty about having a drink because I drink, you know, mm-hmm. I am really conscious about, my drinking affecting my children so we me and my husband if we drink we'll drink you know when they go to bed so they don't see us with alcohol very often sometimes they do but not very often so it's not normalized Mm -hmm. uh, because I think that's important growing up I grew up thinking it was normalized normalized I thought it was normal behavior you know I was growing up in the 90s I was drinking at 13 I don't necessarily want my children to think that's normal. Teenage, adolescence experiment, don't they? Yeah. We've got to accept that and allow our children to talk to us about it, even though like we might be the last people they bloody want to talk to, do you know what I mean? But I think having that open and honest conversation is really important. And I have it with my daughter. She's Mm -hmm. seven. My little boy is four, so he's a little bit too young. But I've worked with four-year-olds who have been affected by parental drinking. And they know. Mm -hmm. They know. And a little girl once said to me, my mummy gets silly when she drinks and she's fallen off a bike and things like that. So that's enough for a young child to know that something is going on with their parent. Um, And, you know, that's just the start of it, isn't it? So I just think check in with yourself and um, think about what what your children are experiencing. You know, my hangovers are absolutely brutal. If I go out and I have a drink, and they have been in the past, I don't want them. I don't want that. But you know what? If I did get one, and this is me as a, a drug and alcohol practitioner for 
16 years you know I I kind of know my limits but there are so many factors and I tend to go over those limits when I'm out with my friends and you know what I'm okay with that because then the next day yeah I'll be hungover but it's not for it's literally like maybe once a year or something like that yeah so so you know and they don't know why I'm tired I wouldn't have that discussion (laughs) with them not yet anyway so I think it's just constantly having that check not constantly you don't want to make yourself anxious because you're having a night out with friends but just having that check-in and thinking about what your children are seeing yeah. Um, and that goes that goes for the for the people we're talking about as well because even though I work with families I don't want the responsibility to be solely on that non-problem drinking or yeah. or drug using parent or carer to be you know responsible for handling the children the person that's drinking or using the drugs needs to think about that as well but then we've got to kind of figure out whether that's appropriate whether my clients have even told their partners parents whoever it is that they're coming for help um it's entirely up to them really but yeah it's about you know in any sort of family relationship personal relationship it's about um mutual respect isn't it and shared responsibility I think and um, unfortunately, when somebody is using drugs or alcohol um, and it becomes a primary focus for them, they can lose sight of the impact it's having on people around them. And the further it gets into a serious uh, situation, the nature of addiction, dependency, if it gets to that point, are that, you know, that person is only getting pl- not pleasure, reward from their substance so they lose sight of what else is around them that they can get pleasure from and that's one of the strategies I teach in my programs because we remind the person that's using the alcohol or the drug that they have other things in their life yeah other interests and what we do we reward them with those things when they are sober so that there's a skill in that that you're saying to the brain oh actually it's not just alcohol yeah. that I'm getting this out of. I used to be into, I don't know, horror movies, um, mountain biking, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Oh, look, I've got my children. They bring me so much joy, but I've forgotten about it. So that, among some other strategies, is one of the things um, that I teach because dopamine, it, you know, um, our reward kind of neurotransmitter in our brain, it wants rewards and when we repeat alcohol or drug use um it just thinks that that's the only only play thing really that's going to get a reward from and we've got to change that and that's something that we can influence as a family member yeah that's a really great tip um I think that's a really great tip, even if you don't necessarily, you're not even at the sort of end of the spectrum where you're talking about addiction or dependency, even just realizing that from a perspective of trying to maybe um, manage, you know, a, a more kind of um, just everyday use, but you feel like you maybe are um, just a bit more reliant on it than you want to be. And just realizing that you can look around for those other things that are giving you the dopamine, the joy. It's something that I sort of use and talk about in ha- just general habit forming, you know, even when you're looking at health and well-being. 
Yeah, definitely. And I, yeah, I agree with that. It's like just some of those questions you need to ask yourself, like, is it, am I, and this is what I ask myself as well, you know, I think what, it, you know, what is this bringing me to my life? Is it affecting me? Is it slowing me down in terms of the progression I want to make in my life? Is it affecting me being present with my family? Is it like, am I living for the weekend? Because, you know, I don't know about you, Francis, but in my um, teen teenage years and in my twenties, I was living for the weekends. They yeah. were amazing. Like I was like, yeah, I've got my ticket for the club and I'm getting ready. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all those things. And that was the focus. But at the same time, I enjoyed my career as well. I got a buzz out of that. So it was always a really fair balance. Do you the know balance. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but other people and, and I, think it's usually around 10% of people may experience a problem with a substance and experience um, an addiction or dependency or problem with certain substances. So probably 80, 90% of the population will be absolutely fine, but the other 10%, um, and that's an average because it varies for different substances, will develop, you know, a, a problem with it. So, um, yeah, like just thinking about, is it becoming habitual? So it's easy, isn't it? Especially when we've had the lockdowns with COVID, people would like moving from possibly, you know, weekend binges to every night. Yes, Um, particularly because it was such a highly stressful situation to be in. So you reach for something which in the past has um, helped you through stressful situations perhaps you know maybe that is alcohol um yeah so I, I definitely I heard quite a lot of that yeah being an issue during yeah that and that's the other thing it's like are you the check-in with me is am I drinking because I'm stressed because I don't do that mm. You know, I wouldn't, I don't want to be picking up a drink as a coping strategy. Yeah. Um, so it's about thinking about other coping strategies. And sometimes it's having a good night's sleep, you know, yeah. get yourself to bed, watch half an hour on Netflix, go to sleep, take your mind off it. Sometimes it's exercise or yoga, yeah. you know, whatever it is, we've yeah. got to find other strategies. So quite often I see in my work, with family members um, is that they almost excuse the substance use of their loved one because they've experienced tough times and Mm. adversity, um, which, but the thing is we all do. And while family members are giving that as a reason for them to use their substance, the person that's using the substance will believe that and use that as an excuse because that's the way alcohol works, you know, that alcohol will be like, well, you need me, you know, you need me in your life because you've been through this. Yeah, it's reinforcing the idea, isn't it? Yeah, so it's really important that even if a loved one has experienced mental health issues, any sort of adversity, you know, and then and then usually within the substance use, you've got further issues, financial, losing homes, you know, a relationship's ending, whatever it is, you've got to believe as a family member that they can change and that they can get real help and support and that they can find healthy coping strategies. Because if you don't believe that, 
as a family member that's in their life, they aren't going to believe it either. Yeah. Yeah. And I see it all the time. You know, they've got mental health issues, got this. We know that 70% of people in treatment for alcohol and drugs have got mental health issues. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that alcohol and drugs is a really good idea no. for them. <laughs> no, no, it's not going to do them any favors. Like, I can't even think about one client that I ever worked with in those years. Um, and, and I gave up working with people who use drugs and alcohol this time last year to focus on the families. Yeah. Um, but I can't think of anyone that's come to me and said that they haven't been depressed or anxious. Yeah. And it's like, but we know, don't we, from using substances, it creates those things, it exacerbates yeah. them. So actually my challenge is, well, you know, you know, it's not going to make you feel any better but then obviously stopping substance use can be a real issue for those people because it brings up yeah you know, yeah the, the, the yeah. adversity yeah have to kind of i guess face the stuff you know that is kind of maybe being masked by whatever the addiction is or you know whatever substance or alcohol yeah, absolutely. But then, you know, the next step is working with somebody who will help you with your substances. And then whether you are in the public or voluntary sector, you know, the charitable sector, or whether you've got a private practitioner. And and I just want to make people aware now, there are an awful lot of people who are setting up businesses, helping people into recovery, which is great. However, please check out credentials because just because you've been through that and you have become sober or you have recovered from drugs does not mean you are qualified and skilled to help other people. And we're seeing it all over the internet. You know, people are just setting up Instagram pages and things like that, which is great because it's it's somewhere where people can go and they can learn from that person's experiences. But there are qualifications for sober coaches yeah. um, and recovery coaches that people can do to help in that peer-to-peer capacity. Um, but I am a professional, I'm professionally trained. Yes. So I help people on a professional level. So even if you're working with somebody who is a trained sober coach, um, they will know to, to refer you on to professional services when it comes to mental health. So, so if you work with people that aren't trained, sometimes what they'll do is try and hold all of your issues and deal with it themselves when they just haven't got the skill base to do it. So I know my professional boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. I know that I can help families. And if I wanted to, I could work as a drug and alcohol practitioner. Um, But what I can't do is treat somebody for mental health. Yeah. I can work with it in the context of what the impact is on the drug and alcohol use and what the rationale might be for using it, but I cannot treat it. So that's when I know I have to put a referral in somewhere else. Same with domestic abuse. Yes. So I work with a lot of women who are experiencing emotional or physical abuse or coercive control, but that isn't my specialism. So I have to make sure that I refer them into another service that can serve them with that issue yeah so yeah so so what but I mean the the promising thing is we've got so many services privately and publicly now that people can access 
So whatever this drug or alcohol use is bringing up, there is somebody that can help with pretty much everything within a family. And that includes direct work with children as well who might be living in that situation. Yeah. Um, And what I would always say is even if your loved one does not even want to think about the fact of got an issue, always, always help children with it, get them some support outside the family home. Because we know now with adverse childhood experiences studies that have looked at different types of childhood adversity, like parental substance use, parental mental health, parental separation, um, any form of abuse, you know, parental incarceration, it does and can have an impact on children through to their adulthood. And we want to be getting in as early as possible with children to help them through that process. And people often often think, you know, oh no, because I don't want anyone to know and I don't want children's Mm -hmm. services getting involved. But you gotta you gotta think past that. Yeah. You know, I, I've worked with families where children's services have got involved and it's professional people, you know, it's people who are working um, privately, got their own businesses, got really great careers. And actually children's services have been really supportive for the family member because they don't yeah, have to sure. handle it on their own. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're helping them get services involved, which then to the person using the substance sends a message that actually this is quite serious. Yeah. You know, we've got to get help. And children's services, let me tell you, will only remove children where the harm and the risk is high. So if you've got a non-using parent or carer within a home or, you know, that that even if your loved one isn't living in the home, that is caring for those children um, and reducing the risks and increasing protective factors. And services are not going to come in and remove children like that. There's a huge process to go through. Um, You know, and it can happen immediately. There can be emergency protection when it comes to kids um, living in this situation. But, But, you know, again, it's protective factors will look at that. Yeah. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, if you do have a loved one like a partner or an ex or so, somebody that has those problems, just always be conscious of um, the fact that if they are intoxicated and in care of the children, that that could be a risk as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Yeah. Goodness, there's so much um, good advice there. Thanks so much, Victoria. Um Do you want to finish with perhaps just um, some ideas for how you can support if you're in a situation where you feel you need that support? How how what what are your top tips for supporting your the person that you're um, dealing with, that loved one and also yourself? Yeah, so I'll just start with the focus on yourself. So the things that I I help my clients with is putting yourself first. So you've got to do that because we know when we're under stress, um, Francis, and you know this, our emotional brain takes over, our rational brain like flips its lid and then um, we're just reacting, reacting, reacting all the time. And actually that doesn't really do anyone any good. You're using all of your negative energy um, and it's exhausting and no change is happening. So what we need to be doing is thinking strategically. And we can only do that is if 
you know, you have got really good level of self-care. No, there's not a level to judge it by, but, you know, you're giving yourself some time to -hmm. look after you and your children. So that's the first thing. And then the, the next thing is to set healthy boundaries. So think about what you want your life to look like and what you want around you. So it's obviously related to your loved one's behavior and their substance use, but but you got to put boundaries around yourself and not the other person. So just make a list of what you want and then think about maybe one to three of those boundaries. So it might be actually, I don't want drinking around me. So then it's like, right, how could, what are you in control of to assert that boundary? Well, you can tell your loved one that, and then you can say what will happen if that happens. But mm. that's that's kind of subjective, really. you got to think about what you're going to do. Are you going to agree that your loved one goes drinking in another room, which some of my clients do? Are you going to say, look, you need to go to bed if you're drinking? Are you going to say you need to drink out of the house? Are you going to say, actually, when you drink, I'm going to leave you to it and withdraw? So there's lots of ways. So Think about your boundaries and assert them over and over and over again. Because often people try and do it once and get the difficult conversation done and over with and kind of leave it. Yeah. But to somebody that's using substances, it needs to be repeated. And it, it, you know, it's the same thing I always say as working, you know, training your toddlers or your dogs. It's like that that reinforce. <laughs> and I'm not saying your family members are like children or dogs, although, you know, some people may argue with that. But um, yeah, it's the same thing. It's that reinforcement. Um, and then we want to be able to help without enabling. So we hear this terminology all the time in my field of work. It's like, how can we help so that we are genuinely doing things that our loved ones are unable to do, or we are doing it out of kindness, mm-hmm. but which of those help, those helping behaviors are actually removing the natural consequences of your loved one's drug or alcohol use? Are you following yeah. me? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. Because what happens is people will clean up after them. People will like clean up the sick. People will ring in sick to work for the loved ones. People will make excuses with them. People will avoid family members. People will pay off drug debts or mm-hmm. other debts. You know, there's all of these things or like they'll live with them. But most of these things are making it comfortable yes. for your loved one to continue that substance use. So we've got to look at that and think about which of those enabling behaviors feel safe to stop. Yeah. Don't don't make a list and stop them all because that's going to be too too, too much. much. So think about which of those you can stop now. And of course, you've got to communicate that to your loved one because if you just stop them, it's going to cause conflict. And I guess that's kind of giving back responsibility to um, to the person, uh, you know, uh, the partner, the parent, uh, because and then they're having to take responsibility for their actions rather than you kind of swooping in and absolutely because you've got to allow people to get back to being independent you know yeah yeah and if you don't do it they're not going to change they are not going to experience those consequences because we know don't we Francis we've spoken about it earlier if you don't have any consequences to your drinking you're not going to change like at the moment I'm not drinking because I want to lose weight and that's that's the motivation yeah when we're when we're motivated, it's got to be something that's important to us. And the only way that somebody 
can understand how important something is, is if they experience the consequences of it. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that's the other one. And then we want to withdraw when your loved one's intoxicated. So get out of it. Don't try and have deep and meaningful conversations. Don't ask why they've done it. Wait until the next day when they're sober or whenever it is, if they're a binger, have those conversations sober. And then the other things are rewarding when your loved one's sober. So like we mentioned before, you want to be thinking about people, places, things, activities that they like that it doesn't involve alcohol and start bringing that back in when your loved one's sober. If they drink, you don't participate in that reward. Um, but if they stay sober, you do it with them. And then, you know, and it's stuff that you like as well. You know, you yeah, don't do. want to be like listening to thrash metal with them if you like, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Not into it, you know, that'd be my worst nightmare. So yeah, bringing those rewards in at a time, ideally when they would usually use their substance. Mm, that's so a it, great idea, yeah. Yeah, it competes with the substance use. So Saturday night, or whatever um and then last but not least is positive communication really really important because what I find with my clients is they're really good at withdrawing the company they're really great when they get to it at setting boundaries and helping without enabling but then they forget to communicate and because you're in relationship with somebody you need to keep that going um, and keep them informed because when we don't communicate, it causes like aggression, passive aggression, it causes conflict. So we want to be like practicing those communication techniques and focusing on our feelings rather than their behavior. And there's a great strategy called I statements or I messages. Have a look on YouTube of how to do that. Um, and then, yeah, if if it's somebody that's using the substance, just go back to what we said earlier and think about um, really what you like about your substance. Make a list, all the things you like about it. Um, so it could be that you have a good laugh with your friends or whatever. What might your substance be helping you to avoid? So these are the positives. Um, And those avoidances might be, you know, difficult times, adversity, childhood experiences, adult experiences, stress, whatever it is. And then the costs are what problems is it causing you? So what problems is alcohol causing you? Are you getting obliterated? Can you not remember going home? Are you getting in fights and arguments? Is it affecting your finances? You know, are your children being affected? Whatever. And then what are you missing out on as a result of your substance use? And if you ask yourself those four things, you'll get a good list, write it down, and then you will see whether the costs are outweighing the benefits. And 99% of the time with people that I've worked with, that is the case. And that's where it becomes important to create a change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I guess it gives you a really clear picture of what's actually going on. Because sometimes it's hard to get clarity, isn't it? I think on situations when you're in it and in your mind, but writing it down is a really great idea. Yeah, it is. It's great. So yeah, if um, in terms of the work I do, I have a group work program called Learn Strategies to Cope with a Loved One's Addiction in 30 Days. So that's a 30-day program that we go through as a group. Um, it's really great. I'm on the second one now at the moment. And what I love about that program is that women on it are getting, 
you know, developing relationships with the other women and understanding that they're not on their own because yeah. it can be so isolating. And people have said to me, gosh, I wish I'd have known about this 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And it's not, my programs are paid. I'm a private practitioner, but I wanted to produce that program to give people support at a lower cost. Uh-huh. Um, and that's that kind of gives me the opportunity to do that as well as my free group, which anyone can come in. Um, the Family Recovery Club, you can search that on Facebook, um, ha- hashtag Family Recovery Club. And then I also have my one-to-one work as well, which is completely tailored support, fully assessed. You know, you get access to me one-to-one once a week, Zooms, and then support in between, workbooks, videos, all sorts of stuff. Um, and the outcomes are phenomenal. And, you know, I took on a lady last week and she just said, as soon as I'd given myself permission to get some help from you, I started implementing change. And I was like, yes. Yeah. So she spent <laughs> some time by herself. Like she gave herself permission to go out of her home and spend time by herself and, you know, look after herself and her well being and stop yeah. doing everything for a family who are grown ups, you know. So, yeah. That's what that's what I want to get to. What my aim is to allow the women I work with to reduce stress and live a better life. Yeah, and that is what I love to see with my clients. So, yeah, that's me. Awesome. Well, I will drop the links to those um, things in the notes for this podcast, Victoria. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. I really appreciate all your wisdom that you've shared with us. And um, yeah, I hope to catch up with you again soon. Thank you so much for having me, Francis. It has been a pleasure talking to you and I love your podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening today. Don't forget that you can subscribe to listen to more episodes. You can leave a review if you've enjoyed today's episode and you can share with your friends. And I'd really appreciate that. Look forward to seeing you next week. And if you need a few moments out for yourself, I've left a free guided relaxation recording in the notes for this podcast. Take care, guys. See you next time.